We acknowledge the Wajuk people and the wider Noongar community on whose lands uh, we conduct our ceremonies, uh, Sazen, and uh, a talk and discussion tonight. May the spirit of the Buddha uh, shine through the words themselves. This is, uh, talk is on uh, from the series Zen and the Passions. This is the passion of greed. Uh, please sit comfortably. Yeah, welcome everyone. Desire and fear are playing an important part. I was thinking about it today and uh, about the passions and you know, general things that we might uh, say about them. And I was thinking that two of the kind of rivers that flow through many of the, what we regard as the passions are um, desire uh, and fear. Uh, you know, what would jealousy be without fear of uh, losing the one you love? Uh, what would greed be without desire? And uh, I think greed embraces desire and fear wholeheartedly and it has that obsessive energy that characterises uh, the great passions. Fear in greed, well, fear of missing out, which can drive greed, I guess. Uh, fear of being hungry. Uh, fear of starving. This is the extreme one that comes on at midnight, you know, if you've missed your dinner. But, yeah. So, yeah, these rivers flow, I think, both desire and fear uh, in, within greed. A great thing about the passions is there are many emotions that converge there, like constellations of emotion. So they're ideal for confusing categories and, um, yeah doesn't allow things to become too cut and dried. At the end of our evening service we recite the four Bodhisattva vows. The second of these great vows is, um, uh, is greed, uh, sorry, the second of these great vows is uh, greed, hatred and ignorance arise endlessly. I vow to abandon them. In Buddhist teachings, greed, hatred and ignorance are known for good reason as the three poisons. The first of these, greed, refers to our selfishness, uh, our misplaced desire. Greed is kind of like we not only refer everything to ourselves, we direct the flow of goodies into our own lap. Other characteristics of greed are attachment, addiction, and grasping. As my mother used to say, greed is a great one for invoking one's mum and dad, you know, because the, the roots of greed and our attitudes go far, far back. You know, with little children, I was thinking of my grandchildren, you know, around the age of three and four, the, the thing of, she, you know, she doesn't share. You know, she's not sharing here. Um, 
and the various tantrums that go on around the division of toys and who gets to lead in the game and all of that. So it's ancient stuff. My mother used to say regarding greed, uh, especially regarding my perceived ingratitude, or real ingratitude for that matter, uh, for all I had been given, much wants more. My father used to say after a good meal, no more, thank you, I've had an elegant sufficiency. I noticed this phrase has come back into fashion recently. It's, it's kind of beautiful, it touches my heart. There's so much the spirit of my dad. And uh, yes, there is an addictive quality to greed. My friend, the psychologist Jan Resnick, uh, tells me that the central current of his life is what is enough. After our material needs are met, how much more do we need to be happy? Uh, and why do we so often end up taking more than we need? Uh, well, I speak for myself here, but maybe for you too. And surely we do eat more than we need to. Uh, we comfort <coughs> eat when we're tired and lonely. We try to boost low energy and depressed mood by eating up big. Uh, food can be a drug, a way of dealing with emotional pain, loss and grief. Uh, when we feel starved of love, it's as though we eat to fill a void. Seen from another angle, greed is that uh, inordinate desire to acquire or possess more than we need. Uh, we seem unable to control the swarm of wants uh, once our desired needs are met. From this perspective, greed comes more into play after our needs are met and we tend to even define it in that way. There's the meeting of basic needs and then the wants tend to come in kind of after uh, the most basic of our needs, life needs, are, are met. It's very interesting. Um, which is not to say, I think, that greed is not there in those that earlier and more fundamental place. But, yeah, well, something to discuss, because this is meant to initiate some discussion. So I'd be interested in your thoughts. Greed is also very much about trying to control the future. I'm taking more just in case. Thus, out of our fear, we take more than we need. And I'm reminded of the panic buying of toilet paper at the beginning of the COVID uh, uh, pandemic, which is just uh, amazing to watch. <laughs> uh, people wheeling these trolleys, you know, with toilet paper stacked up, you know, six feet high and these things. Um, just in case, I guess. So the distinction between needs and wants is a useful one um, and certainly worth discussing. Um, so, yeah, how do you sort out what are, what are wants and what are needs? It feels really a kind of useful distinction. So I'm just throwing out different kind of definitions and ideas and angles on greed here. Uh, Eric Fromm, who was 
German social psychologist and humanist philosopher, uh, described greed as a bottomless pit which exhausts the person in an endless effort to satisfy wants without ever reaching satisfaction. Like this greed, it's like an attempt to fill a void. Um, uh, using Mary Ridwin's great phrase uh, here, justice uh, psychotherapy can be an attempt to fix the self that isn't there. Greed attempts to feed and vitalise the void of no-self to make the vastness of no-self importantly visible, tangible and rewarding. So, but, uh, you know, that, uh, that matter, no-self itself is already rich beyond measure. So there's kind of paradox, for, I think, for sending people around this, the filling of a void um, and then the void which is rich beyond measure you know, full of uh, windows reflecting light um, people sitting in the dojo each manifesting that matter the cold Greed is a kind of self-service. It's surely a passion, an expression of desire writ large. And the Greek philosopher Epicurus, uh, who lived from 341 BC to 270 BC, spoke usefully of three types of desires. Uh, Epicurus is great around this stuff and really worth reading. You know, you have the notion of Epicurean and it's come down historically as, you know, overindulgence. Uh, you know, uh, but this is quite misleading. Uh, he was deeply moderate uh, in his outlook, as the next section shows. But we have this Epicurean view of him uh, you know, loaded with appetites, lust, uh, hunger, greed, all of that. But, he said, first there are desires that we have due to our nature. Hunger, thirst, the need for sleep. These are also necessary to satisfy. If not satisfied, they will cause pain and even lead to death. Secondly, then there are desires that are natural, but which don't cause physical pain if not fulfilled. For instance, having friends. Uh, or perhaps having sex. And he's not entirely clear on which desires fall under this group. Then he says there's the third category. Um, and these are all the other desires we have. Desires for fame and fortune and power. Um, power especially over others. Um, the possession of luxury items, expensive cars, expensive meals and so on. For Epicurus... These were neither natural, nor did they cause any pain, he felt, if they were not satisfied. All this is highly debatable, so I'm just putting it out there um, for your view. Epicurus called this third, these third-order desires uh, vain desires. 
I think it is Epicurus who suggested that money uh, should be used as a means and not as an end in itself. Uh, and I think it's attributable to him that when our basic needs are looked after, we actually don't need a lot of money over and beyond that to live well. Uh, as I understand it, the quotient of our happiness doesn't rise much once our basic needs and security are looked after. And I think it's Epicurus, but my attempts to find the source of this uh, didn't turn up anyone. So... In terms of, of greed, uh, it's good to notice uh, when we're hungry. Um, it's also good to notice what a force field hunger actually is when we are genuinely hungry. Uh, how co absolutely compelling uh, it is. Um, you know, one is tempted to say one should be mindful, but I think when you one is in that space... Uh, <laughs> The gap between you and the hunger um, and your awareness and all of that are all completely uh, fused. You know, not, noticing the pangs, the compulsion, and how our thinking and our good intentions get so easily derailed by being hungry, really hungry. We don't get to experience this, I guess, a lot. Mostly we eat well and often, uh, grazing away the days, so to speak. Um, there is that famous dictum in Zen, when I'm hungry, I eat. So maybe I should get hungry first uh, before eating. So in the mornings after Zazen, I enter the kitchen with a view to making coffee and I head for the coffee pot. But first of all, I reach for a mandarin on the way. I've got to do something about this because I think this is, this is outrageous. I, mean, well, I don't need a mandarin at that hour of the day. It's better after the coffee. It would be nice to have it after the biggies. But there, on the way to the coffee pot, you know, totally distracted, I reach out for the mandarin, peel it, and then start to get the, the coffee happening. So, I mean, I have some task to deal with here um, to try and sort that. But it stands for lots and lots of comfort. Eating, not, uh, casual eating, you know. Yeah, we mostly talk about greed in relation to those who seek. Um, well, we should be talking about greed in relation to those who seek excessive material wealth. With global capitalism, that greed is so pronounced, so front and centre, so taken for granted uh, as a way of being in the world. Um, I mean, my personal view is that greater is not a virtuous position because, in a way, we're all part of this. I mean, I've given talks in the past on, you know, just how en entwined we are um, with global capitalism. So I'm not going to re-rehearse all of that here. But it also seems to me that, I, just personally, it's a very onerous way to live, um, uh, like sitting up all night following the Paris Stock Exchange um, 
bearing reliant on people that you may not be able to trust. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the things. Um, I was thinking of there's a wonderful, this is, goes back years, a wonderful interview between Andrew Denton and Rene Rifkin, where Rene Rifkin uh, is deeply tired because he's been sitting up all night following the Paris Stock Exchange. And uh, he's, as you, if you remember him, uh, he, he died in 2005. Um, he's a well known stockbroker and entrepreneur. His life ended in suicide. He was charged with offences like, um, what do you call it? Um, Insider trading. Pardon? Insider trading. Insider trading, that's right, thank you. Um, but uh, he's also monstrously fat, and uh, he's described sitting up uh, dog tired at 3 o'clock in the morning, but uh, in a pair of bloomers. So he's sort of naked to the waist and then wearing this pair of bloomers. And I remember Andrew Denton's great line, he said, a line has been crossed. <laughs> so beautiful. <laughs> that description crosses a line. <laughs> um, but I, I was encouraged um, by the interview to write a little stockbroker a Dharma poem. And uh, this unfortunately swings on my resemblance, physical resemblance to Renee. To say I'm probably not of the girth, but uh, uh, I was on several occasions mistaken for him in the nightclub areas of Perth. So the poem swings on that reference, uh, unfortunately. Um, the Voodoo nightclub was between Cinema Paradiso and Russell Square, on the same side as Cinema Paradiso. There's a whole group of gambling clubs and that there. So I was walking up past Cinema Paradiso uh, towards Russell Square. <coughs> I don't think there's anything else I have to uncover before I read the poem. Broke, yet sauntering unsupported on air, I pass the voodoo nightclub as the ruby neon flickers on. Hey, Renee, the bouncer calls. Hey, Renee Rifkin. What? One of his after-dinner farts was worth more than I could make in a year. The bouncer retorts, but he was larger than life. I want to say, he's not larger than death, but nod placatingly. He was big, he was loud, he had terrifying friends. Loyal to them all till the end, he couldn't give enough in gifts or money. Uh, and the friends would say, we joke, pissing ourselves laughing. How much would you have to be paid to kiss Renee? By the end, I was up to 50 million. Renee was overheard to say, It's not that I thought I was immortal, but I could never imagine the world without me. How could you imagine it? You were so gaudily it. Gold worry beads, Arawak cigars being chauffeured over the harbour bridge, so many paying court, the doof doof turned up too high for you to hear, let alone listen to yourself. You had to yell to not be heard. After a night like that, you just wanted an afternoon nap. What with the summonses landing and claims you made under oath turning out to be contradictory. Unable to fork out for lo loyalty, you wanted the world gone. Busted, plead out, blustered out. You lay for weeks in your mother's penthouse, 
safe to weep, to come undone uh, in the darkened bedroom. Saying, I don't believe in any afterlife. I find it convenient to believe that all you do is fall asleep and never wake up again. So how did you do it, Renee, so much larger than death that you could bamboozle the voodoo bouncer? Well, great wealth can bring great power and there must be something godlike about the power to be able to shape reality, create and destroy. This is not Rene Rifkin, but generally. Uh, godlike about the power to be able to shape reality, create and destroy national leaders, subvert the democratic will. Uh, sounds like Rupert Murdoch. Through the entitlement that wealth and power brings, you can also get to deal at a vast distance from the tragedies that you create. You can make a million dollars, and Jack, you can go to the wall. For Jack, trickle-down economics is being pissed on from a great height. I remember meeting people who were associated with Bond and part of his uh, empire, people who actually went broke uh, from that association when his enterprises collapsed. Indeed, my accountant at one stage was exactly one of those people. Um, and the tragedy that ensued for their lives, but all at a great distance from the, the, the people concerned. Uh, people like Clive Palmer, for instance, in the nickel mine. So I used to wonder whether the urge to power, I mean immense power and control, proceeds from some kind of childhood starved of love. But I think, now I think that may be too simple. Uh, and it, can't, it may not simply not be true. Uh, in a way, power of that scope is somehow self-justifying. And the world not only allows it, but in many cases applauds it. We used to use the term empire building in relation to big business and there is something of the impulse to conquer and control that did create the great empires. Uh, Rome, Macedonia, Austria-Hungary, Portugal, Spain, Britain, France, Russia and currently in their own ways China and America. I think of the imperial power of vast multinational companies such as um, Jeff Bezos' Amazon and the treatment of its workforce as a kind of subject population. David Loy uh, writes, despite all its benefits, however, our economic system institutionalised greed in at least two ways. Corporations are never profitable enough and people never consume enough. To increase profits, we must be conditioned into finding the meaning of our lives in buying and consuming. Interesting question. Why do people always think that more is always better? And what is enough? What drives us to need more? It's against this backdrop that the ecological crisis that we face 
becomes inevitable. Again, David Law is saying, we bump up against the limits of this compulsive but doomed project of endless growth. And all of, on all accounts, we clearly have. So how do you protest? How do you fight for change? Well, we have Extinction Rebellion, ARRCC here, and the Zen Eco Action Group led by Lucy and Britta, which connects into those groups as well. Um, antidotes to greed. Uh, you know, when we practice our Zen, when we, there is a kind of natural asceticism uh, when we start doing that. I think in most cases we discover that we, we do need a bit less and that we somehow are happier with that. And I think this is largely insensible. We don't set out to do this, but we practice Sazen, uh, and that brings those kind of changes. Maybe our reality is richer, um, so maybe we're less driven. I don't know. Maybe you do. There's no specific precept uh, which uh, I take up the way of not being greedy, but other precepts bear strongly on that, like uh, precept of not killing, precept of not stealing, for instance. Uh, the vow to save all beings also, also bears deeply on that as well. Thich Nhat Hanh writes, I love this, we are here to overcome the illusion of our separation. Uh, yeah. Purpose for being here, to overcome that illusion. I think when that illusion is overcome, uh, we are less greedy. Uh, greed transforms to generosity. This famous, uh, within Theravadan Buddhism, the transformation of uh, greed hatred and ignorance. It's great. Um, transforms with practice to generosity. Do you remember the other two? What were the other two that you're asking? Uh, uh, yeah, hatred, hatred and um, delusion. To insight. To insight? Yes. To wisdom. Yes. That's delusion. And in the middle one, hatred. Loving kindness, Yes, I, I think that's, uh, yeah, thank you. It's good. So this looks at the long-term effects of, of practice, of devoted practice. And still we struggle. You know, it's not like, it's not linear in that sense. Some days we're, we're kind of back in our old habits and patterns and that. Yeah. I, I, I love this, Khan. In the hidden lamp... Uh, Stories from 25 centuries of awakened women. Amy Hollowell has this beautiful card. It is, who benefits from your generosity? To be clear, this isn't about making a list of the charities that you support. Um, although we hope that people benefit from our donations. Correspondingly, the question, uh, 
What is the true value of your money is not concerned at depth with the purchasing power of your dollar. True value is beyond the relativities of gain and loss, wealth and poverty. My friend Martin Seddon and I joke about being retired to the park bench um, to talk philosophy and to read Proust. Martin celebrated his 65th birthday recently and on his way back to the car with his wife and family they came across a homeless man begging. Martin said, I thought to give him $5 but I offered him $50 instead and gave myself a happy birthday. We are already rich beyond measure. Uh, what could we possibly lack? Thank you, everyone. <laughs>